Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us and welcome to our podcast at antiqueauctionforum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. Hi, everyone. This is Martin, and we have a great guest today. I really enjoy meeting people who have a passion for antiques and the preservation of history, and our guest is that person today. His name is Don Carpentier. How you doing, Don? I'm just fine. Uh, now, I saw you at a lecture just the other day here in San Francisco, and unfortunately our wires got crossed, and now you're back there in the snow. Uh, I certainly am. Yeah. You have snow today, right? Uh, It's snowing like mad. You're supposed to get a foot of heavy, wet snow today, yes. Oh, oh boy. Um, Well, anyway, I really enjoyed your talk the other day, and what I'd like to do is talk about um, the whole preservation thing you did with the Eastfield Village and start there. And I I love Mocha Ware, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And finally, I'd like to touch at the end on the lecture I saw the other day about your preservation of the Spode legacy. So first of all, can we talk about Eastfield Village? Well, um, I'd always wanted to, I was always making things since I was a kid, and I'd always liked building, and I wanted to be an architect when I grew up. And um, my folks, my dad was a research virologist, worked for Sterling Drug, and um, he always wanted a farm that he could kind of dabble with and raise some beef cows and all that sort of thing. So when I was 14, uh, my mom and I went out searching for places, and we found this wonderful farm just east of Albany, and um, they bought it. And I moved here when I was 14, and I've been here ever since. I ended up taking over the bulk of it eventually. But um, Wow. Yeah. The farmstead was started about 1790, and there was a farmstead up by the road with a collection of early barns and the house and the whole, you know, all that stuff that went with the original farm. But out at the edge of the east field, and there were some beautiful big fields and, you know, rolling hills and things at this right around here. And um, I had, when I first moved to the farm, I started collecting and finding old things in the barns and in the outbuildings, and then I discovered the dumps on the stone walls and was having a great time. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe that even in 1966 you could pick up a bottle dated 1882 or 1886 on a stone wall and it wasn't in a museum. It was just something yeah. just kicking around. <clears throat> so, because, you know, I've been kind of led to believe all old things were in museums <laughs> as a child. Uh-huh. So, um, at any rate, uh, I started collecting bottles and feverishly scouring the countryside with all of all the abandoned, uh, you know, houses, foundations, and things, and started finding a lot of a lot of wonderful stuff, not just bottles. And um, so, I, being a, a builder anyway, I decided to build a small apothecary shop out at the edge of the East Field, right on the corner of the property. There wasn't much hay or anything there, so my dad didn't get too upset, but said, don't come out in the field any farther. <laughs> and um, that was the beginning of it all. That was about 1967 I started that. Wow. And after I played around with that for a few years, in 1970, I, I kind of went into the woods where the big woodlot was, and uh, put up um, a copy of an 18th century tavern. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Um, I was I was I think 19 when I did when I started that, and um, then I kind of got the bug. And in 1971, actually moved my first period building, and everything at Eastfield was taken down, numbered carefully by me, and moved here. Wow. Oh, I see. So the whole a whole village was moved there. Yeah, the the church, which is 50 feet high and has a 22 foot high vaulted ceilings with balconies and columns and vaulted plaster ceiling, that came from 50 50 miles away in Schenectady County. Wow. It's an 1830s church. Yeah, no, it was a Universalist Unitarian church. It was the first one ever built in the area. Hmm. So, no, I moved everything, but originally the scale was small. I mean, my very first building that I actually moved was a blacksmith shop from 1840 that I played in as a kid next to where we used to live. And the farmer offered it to him, and I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to try moving an old building. So <laughs> I numbered the frame and took it apart and brought it home. Wow. Boy, I, I have done a little bit of that type of work. And by the way, we share uh, the common interests with bottles. I did the same thing. Uh, I scoured the countryside all the way into uh, through high school. I hope you found some goodies. I did, yes. yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have any left today, though, unfortunately. But I did have a really a good time doing that. So moving a building, I've done a little bit of that type of work. And that, that, is, uh, that takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. But, I, you know, as a kid, I had a lot of time and a lot of patience. And when I first started, I had my dad's tractor and trail little wagon that was behind it. And then I, uh, in 1968, I got my uh, pickup truck, which was a 57 Chevy, which was just a used truck at that point. And um, that allowed me to start going to auctions and knock on doors. And, you know, when I was in high school, the other kids used to get me into their grandmother's houses and attics and barns. And, you know, the people didn't want the stuff way back then in the late mm -hmm. 60s. So they just, you know, they'd always make cute, give it to them. It was great. I wish I could still do that. <laughs> yeah. So what are the, the types of crafts that you've learned? You've learned all kinds of things, right? Well, since I didn't have any money, actually, to do any of this, I mean, I literally, with my own two hands, had to take these buildings down and put throw them on trucks and bring them here. When the, when the frames got bigger after uh, 1982, then I, I started bringing my friends in, and we started having big raisings. Uh, I mean, the church is enormous, and that, oh. you know, we had a, we, we had three weekends of, ra of timber frame raisings just to get that thing put up. It's, it's enormous. Wow. But... Um, you know, on the blacksmith shop, I didn't do the best job in the world, so I ended up having to redo it a few years ago completely. But, uh, you know, pick it up, put new sills under it, new foundation, and really do a better job on the thing. But, um, you know, that's where I kind of learned uh, all the things I needed to do to, with, to move a building properly to make sure that everything ended up exactly where it was and uh, nothing got lost and everything was photographed a thousand times and you know, I had absolute documentation for all of it. Wow, that's great. So how many buildings are there right now? There are 28. 28, wow. Yeah, that includes wonderful vaulted ceiling, paneled interior outhouses and that sort of thing as oh, well. Even but, brought the outhouses. They're that's still buildings. I mean, they're pretty big. Some of them are fairly large. Um, but they have vaulted plaster ceilings. One has beautiful federal period paneling all around uh, and by the seats and everything. It's just pretty nice. Wow, wow. And the town didn't have any regulations as far as you doing any of that type of... Uh, no, they didn't, come, they, they didn't start having any kind of building codes in this town until 1987. Wow. 
Oh, I was you. having a great time. I did whatever <laughs> I wanted, and it was wonderful. Yeah. And now I'm I'm the uh, the veteran town board member. I got on the town board in the '90s, and I'm I'm 14 years on the town board now. I'm heading for my next two. You know, there's two more left of my term after this one. Wow. Wow. So uh, let's get a little bit into your craft of mochaware. I I love mochaware. As a matter of fact, when I was probably about 16 or 17, my father um, in the auction business um, had this huge collection of mochaware. That's the first time I ever saw it. It was out of a local estate in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I remember even at that young of an age, I really loved the pieces. And I couldn't believe they were as old as they were. Um, because it just they looked newer to me. And yeah, they're, they're a very modern design. They, they've never really aged out. And when I take my reproductions to shows, some people who aren't familiar with it think I just kind of created, came up with this design out of thin air. They have no idea that it would, you know, they think it's a contemporary art form. Right, right. Um, there's a lot of really organic forms. Uh, I remember the seaweed, the sea worm. I don't know if these are the pri- proper names for them. Right. Yeah, but uh, so uh, I remember all the way back, this was in the 70s, the prices were actually very high for, you know, rel- relative to the times for those pieces. And uh, they're still very collectible today. You're a self-taught potterer. Yes. And, and how did you get into uh, making the craft of uh, mocha ware? Well, I, one of the buildings that I moved here in 1984 was a 72-foot-long inn from 1793 uh, with matched palladian windows on the front and matched pedimented doorways, the whole deal. Mm. And had a big, the bar room is 20 by 20, and the ballroom upstairs is 20 by 30 with, an, again, a vaulted plastered ceiling. Wow. A very, very nice building. And... Um, it took three months to record it and dismantle it and move it, take it down and bring it here. And then I spent a month after that um, doing an archaeological dig on the site and found all sorts of wonderful pottery in the ground. I eventually found the inventory for the, for the building from 1814. Uh, wow. And, um, you know, that, a lot of that stuff cross-referenced. But I decided that I really wanted to furnish that building with appropriate pottery. And at the time, Charlotte's wares especially were very expensive. They've kind of dropped in price now. But um, I wasn't about to let people use old dishes anyway. <laughs> so I, not having any real concept of how these things were done originally, decided I was going to make what I needed for the tavern. And um, five years earlier, on the way to, to work on the tavern, one day I stopped at a yard sale and bought a a kiln and a potter's wheel and some other things and just put them in one of my dad's barns and uh, they were just sitting there so it took five years to actually get to uh, to try any of that out and hmm. I made some molds from original plates and tried to uh, you know make plates from those and it kind of worked but I started doing a lot of research and I'd already been traveling to England for years so this time I went up to Stoke-on-Trent and got to see how these things were actually all of the stuff was made and um so i you know i was making simpler forms initially but i loved mocha where i just it had always attracted me since i was a kid so um i started making it wow and now now i read somewhere that you turn can you can you explain exactly what that is yeah the pieces in the period and even the pieces i make 
had to be thrown first, oversized, and then when they, when you throw them, they get very wet. You have to put them off to the side and let them turn leather hard again, which, the, you know, the, the pot will move a little when it's leather hard. You can squish it a little bit, but it's, you know, it's not a, sop, a sloppy wet clay anymore. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, almost the consistency of a, of a, of a cheddar cheese or something. Hmm. And you throw it, you can literally pound it on a horizontal lead like a wood turner uses. You can put it onto a mandrel and pound it, and it won't crack or fall off or do anything. And then mm. the piece is actually turned with tools just like a piece of wood is turned. Just like a lathe. Just like a lathe. And it's called, it's called a, potter, a turner's lathe. The, the potter's wheel was called a uh, potter's lathe, and then the... Uh, the, turn, the pieces you actually did all the turning and decorating on was the turner's lathe. So I, um, I built a bunch of those lathes, and eventually I copied Josiah Wedgwood's 1768 engine lathe, which is in the museum in Barliston, the Wedgwood Museum. Wow. And uh, that does ornamental turning on the outside of pots. Uh-huh, uh-huh. When you are turning a piece, how do you get it to have such a smooth surface? First of all, the tools have to be absolutely sharp. Mm -hmm. There can't be any grog or any foreign material in the clay. It has to be pure, fine clay. So when you cut it, it's just, it's just a, you know, it's like, it's amazing. It's not like wood because it doesn't have a grain necessarily. It's just pure mm -hmm. material that will take any shapes, any line you put on it, it'll take it. So I just, you know, I turn it roughly and then I go back and, and make a final cut. And then you actually polish the piece with the tip of a little uh, steel blade. Oh, really? Okay. And it gives it a nice, it compacts the surface and gives a nice polished surface on it. Uh-huh. Speaking of clays, what type of, uh, where do you get your clay that you use to make It's made more? in Ohio, actually. It's, it's, believe it or not, it's. The company that makes it is Laguna Clay from California. Oh, really? And, uh -huh. uh, but they bought a, uh, several different pottery uh, clay factories over here on the East Coast. And um, so I, uh, I buy my clays from a local dealer who ships in truckloads of the things from, from Ohio. Now, is it very close to what Mocha Ware was uh, made with? Mocha, yes, it is. It's an earthenware, basically. Eventually, it gets to be a little bit harder body, but it was always originally an earthenware. Okay, and uh, I'm probably talking like a layman here because I just have never done any of this type of work. As far as the, the decorating, is that done pre-glazing? Right. What, what happens is you, the, the, pot, the clay is still damp or moist. You put it on the lathe and you turn it in the leather hard state, and immediately it's decorated. Mm -hmm. While it's still spinning on the lathe, the lines are, are blown on it from uh, originally from a blowing bottle through a goose quill. They blow the de they put the colored bands on it, and if you wanted a wide band, you just take that that single goose quill and you just work your way sideways in a big spiral, basically with each each spiral hitting the one before, and then make a wide band, and then you drip your cat's eyes on, which are made it from a three chambered slip pot where everything comes to a point. All three chambers come to a point, and one drop comes down, and it's a segmented round drop that hits on hits on the, uh, the the eye. And if you want to make an earthworm, you just overlap them one after one after the other, or you can take a wet slip field on the pot and touch uh, tea made from um, in the period urine and tobacco juice with uh, metallic oxides in it, and you just touch that to the that's an acid, and the, the slip field is the base, and you just touch it to the slip field, and it'll ramify into a big tree, and when the pH reaches 7, it stops moving. 
Wow. Now, how did you learn all this? A lot of well, I mean, my my family's got research in their blood, so uh-huh. I, I you know I don't stop till I figure it all out. But uh-huh. um, looking at lots of period texts and uh, you know trying things, talking to other potters, and um, that, you know it's been twenty some years now since I started. Does someone ever confuse your pieces for period pieces? <laughs> all the time, and I mark them. I'm I'm very careful to mark every piece, and that's great. Even even with my name on them, people. Think they're old. Yeah, yeah. And what is the process of the glazing? Um, well, you first, what you, once you've decorated them on the lathe and put the slip on it, because it's actually liquefied colored clay that's a decoration on the pots. Mm-hmm. And once that's all dried, the handles are on, everything's done, and the whole, whole pot is dry clay, it goes into the kiln for the first time and gets what's known as biscuit firing. And when that comes out, then you add the uh, you dip it in glaze, and uh, then it goes back in the kiln again, and then it's finished when that glaze is fired on. Really? Yeah. Now, do you are your pieces offered for sale at the property? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And do you, you also online, or you can you, know, you can you can email me, or you can come here and buy them. Sure. Okay. Well, speaking of, while we're at this point, why don't you give out your web address? Oh, uh, there there is a website called greatamericancraftsman.org and that's plural craftsmen m-e-n mm-hmm. and oh. that will if, it'll show the village in, on the website and it'll if you click on um, the general store heading it'll take you to an area and then at the very bottom of that list of, uh, on the left hand side it'll say mochaware and you can click on that and it'll show you all sorts of pots that I make there's hundreds of pictures Okay, great. Well, anyone that's listening on our website, I'll have that linked just below this podcast. Okay. And do you sell your mochaware in other venues as well? I just came back from a huge craft fair in Philadelphia, and uh, sold. You know, I've been doing that for many years. I think fourteen years now. I've been doing that show. Mm. It's called the Designer Craftsman Show, and it's actually a really good show. So I, and I'll be doing another one down in Delaware uh, in May. And uh, but for the most part, I just sell it by word of mouth and over the internet. Sure. How many piece, pieces could you make in a day, generally speaking, from start to finish? Um, well, that's it depends on the piece. If it's a, I make wonderful large two-gallon um, pitchers or jugs, they're called with the mocha decoration and I, and I can only make two or three in a day mm-hmm. uh, because adding handle first of all once you make them they get saturated with a slip and they have to get set off to the side and uh, that's that's after they've been thrown and set off to the side for a day or two drying a little bit then they go on the lathe get decorated get put off to the side yet again till the, the slip dries out on the body and then I end up, um, you know, then I can apply the handles and spouts, and then they have to dry and wait to go in the kiln for a day and then come back out, get glazed, and put in the kiln again for another day. So, you know, smaller things can, can be done a lot faster. It just depends on the item, really. And just a, a pint mug, um, depending on the decoration, it can be on the lathe for less than five minutes and, and put to the side. Waiting to you know, waiting till the next day to have a handle and um, handle applied to it or whatever, and then dry it out. But it just it you know then you've got to throw the pot in the first place, and then it has it's more you spend more time watching the clay and making sure that it's at the right consistency than about anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, are you a collector of uh, original pieces of mocha? Yeah, I have.
have about 300 pieces in my 300? Yeah. Only 300? Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. I love this stuff. Yeah. And now, is there a particular really rare piece of mocha ware that you can think of? Well, I do have one. I mean, there's a lot of really nice stuff, but uh, I have one bowl that was made by Wooden Caldwell in the 1790s. And I, I think the sentiment they they, they use they use type around the rim and they impress the, mm. the the slogan or the phrase God save the king. Wow. And remember there was the madness of King George, yes. and uh, I think they were the, kind of hoping he was going to third. be okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the rest of it's all engine turned and four colored checker checkers and everything. It's big big Chinese shaped punch bowl. Wow. And it's it's actually really rare. Nobody's ever seen anything like it, and no, no more have ever turned up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, all right, now I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I want to talk about um, what I saw your lecture on, the Spode Legacy Preservation. Mm-hmm. So can you t- tell our listeners about, I mean, I was just overwhelmed by your story and the images on that Um can you uh, basically explain how that whole thing happened and what was involved in it? All right. Well, the Spode factory has been on the site it was, you know, that they just sold since the, the 1770s. It was a pottery factory on that site in the 1750s. But um, I had been going to that site for years, you know, trying to going to factory tours and talking to the curators of the museums. There were two of them that I knew, and you know, looking at looking at potter's tools and whatever I could. And the museum had a huge collection of its own, but also on the site was the factory, and the factory owned a lot of the material. The museum didn't own those other things. So um, I've been asking one, the last curator that was there, um, for years, to, you know, what kind of molds were in the mold stores, and she'd been very kind and showed me around a lot of it. So I'd taken my son to... Um, England for a two-week vacation in 2006, and um, while I it was his birthday, and uh, we were flying back over the Atlantic, and I get home, and there's a and we were in Stoke-on-Trent that day. We left from Stoke-on-Trent. The next day, I um, I get a phone call from the curator saying. The site's been sold. Anything you want, you better get over here and talk to the corporation <laughs> that owns this place, to the, the head of the corporation, and you know, because you can get it for just about whatever you want to pay for it. Mm. So she said, we're so overwhelmed with what we have in the collection here, and we're going to have to move off the site as well. So we're just, you know, we can't take any more things. So, and she'd also told them she tried for six months, the kind of emailing and writing to every institution in England that she thought might want any of it, and not one institution replied. Where do you think that the reason for that is? Oh, I think they're all overworked and underpaid, actually. Uh. And not to mention going into this, these collections of 19, early 19th century buildings and 18th century buildings were filled with a half an inch at least of coal dust sitting on everything. They were mm. filthy. Mm. And you really got to be dedicated to want to go into a mess like that to, to you know, <laughs> go through sixty thousand objects. Sixty thousand yes. objects. That's yes. we're talking about sixty thousand molds is what you you and to, right and tools and various objects. So I it took me um, about six trips and about three months to um, to get through all of it and pack it. 
Right. Actually, it was three months over a two-year period. It was a long. It took a long time to go through it. But I got to go through three major buildings where the tools, had, the, the tools and molds had been stored. A lot of them since about 1820 or 30, and a lot of them had even been moved off their shelves since about 1840. That's amazing. And I found just just unbelievable things on you know under all that dirt mm-hmm. now uh, i saw well, i'll try to put a couple of images on our website as well but you found um you found a lot of pieces that was a actually start out as a puzzle but you always seem to figure out where they went to have have you looked at any of the molds and have never been able to understand exactly what they are not so far Mm-hmm. I mean, I, Robert Copeland, whose family owned that factory for over 150 years, because um, it was Copeland and Garrett, and then just Copeland's uh, spode eventually. Um, he, was, he was actually the director at one point. So um, they, you know, he said, I mean, unless I was a working potter who had done all this research, I wouldn't have known what I was looking at. Uh huh. So he was really pleased that I'd gotten it. Right. Now, was there any problem at all um, importing that into the U.S.? Not at all. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. No, two 40-foot containers load, container loads filled. And, um, no, they, they, I mean, they customs looked through them, but I, they probably thought it was more like landfill than anything else. <laughs> and where are you storing these currently? The Historic Eastville Foundation has... Purchased the original part of the farm that my, my that I was raised on, and the, with all the original buildings, and there's a large uh, storage building there, and they're all on shelves and all getting sorted out and cataloged. So it'll take a while, but they're they're getting put up on the shelves now, and it, they're you know it's just a wonderful collection. Sure, yeah, and the pictures that you were showing, I couldn't believe. Uh, they were stacked all the way up to the ceilings. I mean, you talk about sixty thousand objects, and what four buildings or how many buildings? What they Three were? buildings, yeah. Yeah, and all the way up to the ceiling in every single one of them. Now, are you going to actually make some pieces from from these molds? Well, yeah, I've already I've already done that. I've already uh, right away just just for exhibit purposes because I've done quite a few exhibitions uh, of some of these spoke spoke items. Um, I would, you know, I wouldn't work with a period mold because it'll destroy it eventually. So, I did. I take one lift off, and um, mm-hmm. and that's it. I I can take silicone lifts off of the actual original molds without hurting them, and that'll allow me to make work, modern working molds that I, off of those. I see. Now, what is what is the earliest of the molds that you found there? Um, 1780s. Um, well, actually, there's a there's a item called a um, grand plot menage which has um, shells that kind of come out in three different tiers these scallops big scallop shells side by side all the way around in a circle and it has things you know they're all supported by maidens and all sorts of wonderful uh, items kind of connecting connecting them and i found the whole set for the, for all those from about about 1785 1790 wow now was that your biggest surprise in the molds or no, no, no. The, uh, the token for the coronation or the ascension of George the Fourth to the throne in 1820 that nobody's ever seen, and yet <laughs> here's the mold for it, and nobody knew it was even in the factory. 
Now, do you think it originated in that factory? Or? Oh, yeah. I'm sure yes. it was from there. Yeah, because he was made potter to the king that year. I see. Okay. Spoiled became the potter to the king in 1820. Um, didn't you say also that there was some pieces bought in an auction in the early 1800s? Those were the, the molds from the Turner factory. Turner, John Turner was a phenomenal, really high-quality potter in, uh, in Stoke in the uh, late 18th century. And... He went out of business, I think, in 1809, and in 1828, this, the, um, Spode went to the uh, to his auction and bought all his sprig molds for doing ornamental appliques on the outside of the pots. Now, let's talk just a little bit about the Spode factory. I saw the pictures you showed of that, and it, there was originally a facade, and then all these buildings behind. Can you explain exactly how that... Right. Factories are usually done, built in a... Um, with a courtyard inside. So there'd be a main entrance, Palladian facade, main entrance with an archway through it, and, you know, Palladian windows and, also, and, and Diocletian windows above are very, very uh, formal. And then you go through the, to the inside, and then there'd just be buildings all the way around the exterior, maybe more buildings sitting inside. But, the, you know, it was all in a courtyard and protected. Uh-huh. And they're beautiful old period buildings in there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll try to get a picture of that up as well. Um, do you also do, uh, getting back to your pottery work, do you also do some restoration of old pieces? No, I do not. Uh-huh. Can I come back in a little bit? My son is hopelessly stuck in the driveway. He's about to knock down the fence. Okay, while we're waiting for Don to dig out his son, I'd like to talk to you about a few things. We do get emails from all over the world these days, and we enjoy reading every single one of them. So if you'd like to email us, our email address is info at antiqueauctionforum.com. We always can use support for this show, so for free you can tell a friend about us, or you can rate us on iTunes or any other podcast sites. Thank you, and we'll be right back. So was he stuck in the snow good? Oh, boy, was he ever, yeah. I had to get the big loader out, and uh, <laughs> and even that had trouble pushing snow around it. We have a quarter-mile long driveway. Oh, my goodness. And the snow piles are 12 feet high in some places. And really? Wow. I don't know where I'm going to put more when we get it, but it's, I mean, I've never seen this much snow. We've had over 12 feet of snow this winter. Oh, my goodness. Boy, I bet you can't wait for spring. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you do some historical consulting. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? been working on rest, consulting for restoration projects with architects and and I work on movies too sometimes I've been doing that for years since the uh, since the late 70s I did my first feature film as a matter of fact I did my first feature film in 1978 for Merchant Ivory with a, with a woman named Jenny Bevan who's up for an Academy Award this weekend oh. uh, for the costume designs on um, King's Speech Wow she and I are like best friends, like brother and sister. I go stay at her house, and she comes over here. Oh, that's great. Wow. Yeah, but at any rate, uh, that's just an aside. No, I also I teach uh, historic preservation. I started a school here at Eastfield 
1977 of historic preservation and historic trades, and it's still running, and it's the oldest of its type in America. And um, wow. I also teach at UMass Amherst in a master's program called Building Conservation. Wow, that's great. Boy, there are some people out there that have made their mark in the preservation of our past, and I consider you one of them. Oh, thank you. Yes, and we're really glad you joined us today. And thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners, again, you can go to our podcast site and click on some links, and we'll have some images there for you as well. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you again. I I appreciate being asked, okay? Yes. All right. And take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So this is Martin Willis with Don Carpentier, and we're signing off. While you are on our website, antiqueauctionforum.com, please stop by the forum message board. Click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic, post your own website links, and do a lot more. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show.